3: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I've done something just for you, Alina. I wouldn't have found an Australian accent. Perfect. Brilliant. No, it's is, It is really good because we have Matt McLachlan with us, who uh, is uh, he's many, many things. But uh, right now, he's a battlefield historian, but he also runs his own podcast um, down under, which is uh, Matt McLachlan's Living History, which you should definitely check out because it's awesome. But the story behind this podcast, first of all, let's say hello to Matt. Hi, Matt.
1: Hello, guys. Thank you for having me.
3: No, you're very welcome. So you're somewhere north of Sydney, and how is lockdown?
1: It's not too shabby where I am. I'm, I'm looking at a nice view of the water and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it takes some getting used to, but not seeing friends and family. But um, yeah, it's, it's, there's worse places to be is all I can say.
3: Yeah, you guys have gone from all the bushfires straight into coronavirus though. I mean, 2020 sucks even more for you guys so far, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, we went bushfires and then we had floods that put the bushfires out. And caused chaos and then uh now obviously coronavirus. So it's been a, it's been an interesting start to the year. But we we can't complain. I mean Australia's handling it well. And yep. I just feel so sorry for America and you know the UK and other places that are really suffering. So we're we're actually doing okay compared to other people, so we can't complain here.
3: Well, it's good to hear that everybody there is healthy um on your side of things. The story behind this podcast is that I gave a talk at Eton uh about four years ago now, where I got up and I had to do an overview of the war and this book I wrote. I bitched about um, writing a Gallipoli chapter because I'd never been and I didn't care. um, And I made a joke in the talk where I said that uh, I hated Gallipoli because I didn't like Mel Gibson's face and I hated synthesizers. So the film was crap. And I didn't want to write the chapter, which I thought was very witty. Everybody else laughed. But I got accosted by an Australian woman afterwards who basically thought I was Satan incarnate because I had belittled Australian national identity. And I was like, no, I just don't like synthesizers. I'm sorry. And Mel Gibson's (laughs) face gets on my nerves. But. To make it up to that lady for me being disrespectful, Matt McClachlan is here to talk about Gallipoli and Australian national identity. Are you looking forward to this, Matt? I am because I I could do with learning this.
1: Yeah, I, I really am because this is um you know this is the big one as an Australian historian yeah. talking about Gallipoli and and you I mean Alex you summed that up right there that it means so much more than just a campaign or just facts and figures or just strategy, to Australians this is, you know, something of religious significance. And I I don't even, I'm not even exaggerating when I say that. There is a real secular religion idea about the the whole concept of Gallipoli. And so, yeah, it's dangerous ground when you uh, speak ill of it.
3: (laughs) Joe, I was, I didn't actually say I didn't like Australians or Gallipoli. I just said that my, I had not experienced it. I have been now. I went with Peter Hart. Um, I survived a week with Peter. Hart. That, would have,
1: that would have been an, that would have been an adventure in itself.
3: I know, um, but I survived not only walking um, in Gallipoli, where I, but I learned that the beaches you're talking about they're not sodding beaches. They're like strips of shingle, and I learned that every time you try and walk everywhere, anywhere in Gallipoli, you're looking at a massive cliff face and fauna everywhere that wants you to die everything stings you rips your skin hurts um and really learn how inhospitable and how stupidly thought out this campaign must have been if people thought that australian british indian french troops could just wander up and take it um so i have a lot more respect for it now i still hate synthesizers and mel gibson and i'm not taking that back but let's start let's briefly cover the beginning tell me what australian national identity was about before the first world war just quickly how did australians perceive themselves i mean they were part of empire but they they had their own identity already didn't they
1: yeah, it's a really fantastic question, and it's something I think as Australians we don't ask enough. You know, How did we see ourselves? Why did we go to the First World War? And I think the really important component of that is we saw ourselves as at least partly British, um, but for many people, mostly British. Um, and that wasn't just to do with how we saw ourselves. That was also to do with how our government operated. We had only been a nation, a federated nation since 1901, so still fairly young. Um, our, even though we operated independently, we had our own government. We made our own decisions. A lot of our trade was hugely dependent on Britain. Our foreign policy was uh, pretty much determined in conjunction with the British. So when the First World War started, it wasn't just a European war either, because our nearest neighbour was German New Guinea. So we had a German colony right on our doorstep. On our doorstep. Uh, so there was a lot of reasons that it made sense for Australia to participate in this war. Um, but I think that's the 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 most important element of this entire story is that. That incredibly strong connection to Britain, mm. which lasted right up until 1942, really when uh, you know when we felt a little bit abandoned by the mother country. But that's a topic yeah. for a separate uh, podcast. <laughs> but the, the, the important elements, the important elements of this is just that huge link we felt with Britain and that commitment that we made at the start of the war to serve in whatever capacity Britain wanted us to, and that's how we found ourselves in Gallipoli.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I found a brilliant quote um, I'm mired in doing uh, the tour of Prince George and Prince Eddie um, on the Bacante uh, in the 1880s. And when they get to Australia, someone basically said that all the Australians they met thrilled to meet the royal family. Clearly thought of themselves as connected to them, as British, but had no desire to go back there. They were in Australia now. That was where they belonged and that was where they wanted to be. Um, Just quickly, the reaction of Australia. You've already mentioned they felt they had to go to war with Britain, but it, it was enthusiastic, wasn't it? Nobody was conscripted at the beginning of the war.
1: Absolutely. There was no conscription in Australia throughout the war. It was mm-hmm. a purely volunteer force. I mean, there was uh, the citizen military forces. So there were um, militia forces that, uh, that were raised, but effectively there was no conscription. There were two big conscription, conscription referendums that were both defeated. Um, I think the interesting thing about this is we felt a huge commitment to Britain. Um, but I think in terms of whether we wanted to go to the war, I think there was a something you probably still see today. There was a slight arrogance in Australia that we're like, the better version of the British, almost that the, mm-hmm. the the best people from Britain have come out here and forged this new society in where the weather's a lot nicer. So there was, a, I think, there was a real, I'll call it a confidence in the Australians, which could border on arrogance, and that pers- persisted. Well, not just today, but throughout the war. Definitely the persist in themselves. the
3: cricket, Matt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's, not, let's not mention the cricket. and the rugby, um, <laughs> yeah. So, it, but that rivalry existed. That you know, that, it's fun. You know, it's it's fun yeah. to make jokes about cricket and rugby. It's, it, it's lighthearted, but it did exist at the time as well. And the the Australians saw themselves as very British, but perhaps a better version of the British. And I'm not saying that's true in any capacity, but I'm saying that there was a perception that you know there was a little bit of a okay, we'll show the Poms how that how this should be done. Yeah. Um, and there was there was always a confidence with the Australians about their ability uh, to fight alongside the British.
3: So let's just break it down in a few stats for people. How many Australians go in at Gallipoli? Uh, what happens to them with the landings? Because they, they do go in on the first day. Um, and what kind of casualties do they suffer early on?
1: Okay, so there's about 50,000 Australians uh, do garrison duty in the Middle East. Uh, and they were the, and that was the reason that they were, because they were on hand, they were selected, uh, to, um, join the expeditionary force to, to land at Gallipoli. So the only reason the Australians are there, they were actually on their way to France to fight on the Western front. Um, they were in Egypt at the time. And so they were seconded and sent off to Gallipoli. So that's the only reason the Australians were there. It wasn't anything to do with some sort of suggestion that they would do it better than anyone else. It was, it was simply just, they were available. They were nearby and they were available. Um, so all in all, about fifty thousand Australians served at Gallipoli during the uh, during the campaign, and we lost about eight and a half thousand killed. So not insignificant numbers, but obviously that would pale in comparison to what would come the following year on the Western Front. Um, but it was still, you know, Gallipoli was characterised. You touched on it: the terrain, the climate, um, and the, the lack of the lack of success that the Allies experienced at Gallipoli really characterized this campaign for the men at the end of the day the failure to advance the failure to take the objectives um, simply meant that it, it meant that blokes were stuck in the front line for extended periods in heat with dead bodies all around them you know exactly as uh, as as the British and French experienced down at helles so
3: how does because obviously the australians then for the remainder of the war um gallipoli is evacuated and the australians go on to the western front and they um they conduct themselves uh <laughs> let's not talk about the drunkenness and anything like that but in battle by the end of the war the australians are seen as as a great force and peter hart talks about in his book 1918 about how strong the the australians are um and how well they're viewed by the end of the war um, but this attachment remains um, more to gallipoli than it does to the western front um even in so the first anzac day is in 1916 And it's called Anzac Day. And there's a huge um, service at St Paul's um, and it has to be held outside because there's too many Australian troops there and the King attends and that. So why is it so quick and why are they so attached to that theatre and not the, the comparatively longer length of time they spent in France and Belgium?
1: Well, there's a couple of things about that. It's a great point that you make. You've identified something that's really crucial here and that is that Gallipoli was iconic from the earliest moments. From the moment those troops hit the beach, something changed in Australia, and the troops recognised it, the people back home recognised it. So there were huge Anzac Day commemorations in 1916, as you say, in London, also all across Australia, with troops who'd come home, with people, with families who still had soldiers away fighting on the Western Front. Um, and so the, the soldiers themselves always saw that, the, the, because it was a, min- a minority of soldiers that fought at at Gallipoli, you know, out of the nearly 400,000 that would eventually serve, only 50,000 had served at Gallipoli. And so those men were seen as the originals, as the, the diehards. It was something of huge importance to the troops. And the, the, the Gallipoli veterans, I mean, they used to refer to it as ANZAC, not as Gallipoli. They would refer to it as ANZAC. And on their colour patch that they wore on the Western Front for the rest of the war, which identified their battalion, men who'd served at ANZAC were allowed to wear a small A on the colour patch. To indicate that they had served at Gallipoli, and so we should remember that from its earliest days there was this mythology about it and this iconic nature of this campaign. Um, and I think it was just because it was probably because of the defeat, not in spite of it, that we remember Gallipoli. Because the way we see ourselves as Australians, and I don't want to get too in, too much into psychoanalysis here, but the way we see ourselves as Australian a lot of the things we did at gallipoli reflects that it's 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 courage under adversity it's hanging on even though you don't win it's it's looking out for your mates in the worst conditions so i think i actually think because of the fact that gallipoli was a defeat it, it defined something in australians and what we commemorate and also, i'll use the word celebrate because we do mm. celebrate gallipoli what we celebrate about gallipoli is not the military achievement this is not a great we don't hold great victory parades to commemorate the, the great victory it's it's got nothing to do with that it's got nothing to do with strategy or politics it's got to do with blokes in the front line hanging on when other people wouldn't and that just struck a chord with australians when they read in the newspapers from the earliest days the first reports came back in early may about the glorious landing there was just something in australian in that just struck a chord in australians that our blokes are over there doing something that's pretty important um we also did it in relative isolation. We served alongside the Kiwis, but we were separated from the British troops for the most part. We yeah. were down in Helles. So we were, we were in our own area. We were under Australian and British command. There was a, a, it was easy to see what the Australians were achieving at Gallipoli. And it were, the stories were quite glorious, you know, the glorious charge of the neck and men giving their lives for a greater cause. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of you know, Greek tragedy elements about the whole story and it just it struck a chord with the men that were there. They realised at the time that something pretty significant was happening. It struck a chord with people back home. It struck a chord in particular with people who would then tell the story, like Charles Bean, the official correspondent who went on to write the official history and founded the Australian War Memorial. He was the father of the Anzac legend. And so yeah. he, from the earliest days, recognised Gallipoli as well and fell in love with the story and so wrote volumes and volumes of praise for what the australians have done there so it's a complicated mishmash of motivations but i think you can see the 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 core ones that come through there that were shared by everyone who, uh, who, who viewed the campaign
3: and also as well that that isolation kind of carries on for the rest of the war as well and i see how that could develop and how it could grow because the anzac um are always their own core aren't they on the western front um They are always, uh, uh, they're not split up and divided down amongst divisions or amongst British troops. They always remain, I mean, there's two Anzac corps, but they always remain in cohesive large groups, don't they, on the Western Front?
1: Yeah that made it very easy for the Australians to forge an identity an identity they wanted to forge there was a way they wanted to see themselves and they did everything they could to project that image but we do have to say at this stage the only reason they could do that is because of the support from the british that the the, mm. the you know that most of the australians were combat troops because the british were supplying support elements um you know the british allowed the australians to have their own units and their own identities and not mix them in as they did with uh, with units from other countries so the, the british did a lot to foster this self-image that the Australians wanted to project
3: and also as well even not just militarily but when you get to 1917 there's very much this so we had been taking, uh, yes Britain is supplying them but we have been uh, asking Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada for endless troops to be fed into this battle in Europe uh, this war in Europe Um, and there becomes this sense of you you have to, in that case they need a seat at the table when you're making the decisions which is when the Imperial Conference is coming in 1917 and George V is a huge um, protagonist in this because he says you cannot expect these countries to serve up their youth to die on the battlefield when they don't get to make any decisions about how this war is being fought so not only at the front but then um in london and in whitehall um any uh dominion prime minister that was in town is invited to sit in on cabinet meetings as a cabinet member while they're there um and to, to and not just as a spectator they can speak as well um and there's there's a whole um movement as well so it's not something the british try to block is it this developing sense of national identity
1: No, absolutely not. I think they recognised that the, there was a motivation for the Australians to see themselves as as good troops who fought in a specific Australian way, and they, they actively encouraged it. And it's, it's another thing that jars with me this concept that, that still gets pushed occasionally in Australia, the idea that, of the British bungling general sending the brave Aussies off to their death. It just, I mean, as much as we know, that's obviously ludicrous when we, you know, it doesn't take much uh, analysis to, to determine that that's a ludicrous position. But in a broader sense, it doesn't hold true either. As you said, the British government was incredibly supportive of the Australian um, position uh, and, and the Australian identity and the Australian independence. And, you know, Billy Hughes, the Australian Prime Minister, played an important role um, during the conference of Versailles after the war. You know, so Australia was very well treated. It, it didn't have to be that way. Britain, if, they wanted, if, if it wanted to, could have just taken the Australian divisions and mixed them in with the British ones. and mm. um, So there was a great working relationship throughout the war. It was sometimes a little fractured, but um, all in all, I think the British were very supportive of this Australian need to be, uh, to be independent.
3: And even so, when we get to the end of the war, we're looking at um, obviously the 11th of the 11th is a date that we all mark and commemorate. But still, Anzac Day is bigger for the Australians, isn't it? So this is from the very onset the date that australians tie themselves um to the first world war in in an independent way
1: yeah absolutely and i mean obviously we've been commemorating anzac day for several years by the time the first armistice day uh, came along um in australia even today remembrance day as we call it november 11 is very much the poor cousin to anzac day it's it's not a public holiday um there's there's no there's there's formal commemorations but there's no major organized marches etc it's it's there's simply services that are held people are encouraged to stop and and pause and have a minute silence at, at 11 a.m but i doubt most people even know that they should or take the time to do it anzac day is the day and uh, in australia it's 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 funny in the modern era because our national day is supposed to be australia day january 26 when the first fleet when the british first fleet arrived in sydney and began the colony of New South Wales, that's supposed to be our national day. But that's a very divisive day now because obviously Indigenous Australians don't see that as a day to be celebrated. Yep. Um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, the rest of Australia uh, is behind them on that. So um, our, our national day, Australia Day, has become very divisive and people aren't sure whether they should commemorate it or how they should commemorate it. The one day that remains the true national holiday and the national celebration of what it means to be Australian is Anzac Day. And I'm not the first person to say it's our secular religion, but I, I can't overstate the significance. If you're interested in it, a lot of people are not interested in war and don't have any, any connection yeah. to it whatsoever, and that's fine as well. But if you are someone who is passionate about it, like so many Australians are, Anzac Day is is your Christmas day every year.
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and it's the, the fact that you cannot get a hotel room in Gallipoli um, on that day either. Um, I mean, it's 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 your 1st of July, isn't it?
1: It absolutely is. It's quite extraordinary. People can never believe, Turkish people can't believe it. I mean, you talk to an American and try to explain to them what Anzac Day means and say, well, there's this place in Turkey, which is this most isolated place where we were defeated in an action over a century ago, and yet regularly 10,000 Australians will travel 24 hours from Australia to be there at dawn and sit out in the freezing cold to be there at the moment That those troops landed on that beach. It's, it's quite an extraordinary thing. And I think we take it for granted in Australia. We take it for granted that young people see it as a real rite of passage to do an Anzac Day at Gallipoli. We, we take it for granted that older people will travel all the way from Australia to be there for this incredible service. It's consistently mentioned. If you see those rather trite articles in the newspaper that what's the, we've surveyed thousands of people and here's their bucket list for the year, for the upcoming year. Anzac Day at Gallipoli is always in the top. Always in the top ten and often in the top five. It's it's just an iconic Australian thing to do.
3: I mean, it is from what you're saying. Then, absolutely, the birth of Australian national identity, isn't it? Is yeah, that I, break, I actually... sorry? Is that break between um, believing yourself to be British and Australian, and believing yourself to be part of something separate, and that to be Australian is something different from being British.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't necessarily think it's the case. I, I think we, through this lens of a century later, look back and say that was the birth of the nation. I don't, you know, we can have a long discussion about whether that's the case or not, but there certainly is a perception that that is the case. That, you know, there's this idea, and you and I talked about this before the interview, Alex, that the, the concept of, um, that I, your national identity has to be forged in blood. That, that, that that's just, that that's the reality that countries, Countries see their conflicts and their bloodshed as defining moments. And Australia had a very peaceful journey into existence. Australia was a colony of Britain. We said we wanted to go our own way. Britain said, okay, how how do you see this working? Uh, And in 1901, Australia became a federation. We became our own nation. The states came together. We became a country. Signed some papers, had a constitution drawn up, picked where our capital was going to be, and off we went. Um, that's difficult for people to look back on and feel any sort of emotion about, you can feel proud that we didn't have a big war to gain our independence, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it was politics and contracts and signing bits of paper. It was men in bad suits, you know, chatting with each other and drinking cups of tea and then signing documents. It's not something that gets people excited. And then only 14 years later, you know, the, the youth of Australia charging the beaches, on behalf of Britain, you know, to, to take our place on the world stage, that resonates with people, and it should, it absolutely should, um, and it resonates in a way that is much more important than the outcomes of the campaign or whether we should have been there in the first place. Because I think everyone recognises that Gallipoli never should have occurred. Um, that's not what the that's not what our collective memory requires to tell this story. We, we require you know, a great sacrifice in the name of Australia. And this was our first opportunity to do it. So it's, it, that's why it still resonates a century later.
3: It does. And when you put it like that, it's, it's almost a, an obvious progression, but then I still think it's completely uniquely Australia because you could say the same thing about Canada at Vimy. That's the first time that, um, Canadian troops from all of, um, all parts of Canada, uh, attack on the same day, um, together in one place and you can say that that's the birth of the Canadian nation forged on forged in blood on the field of battle uh, in 1917 but not to denigrate what the 9th of April means to Canadians but it doesn't mean what it means to Australians in in April when you get to Anzac Day does it
1: absolutely and you could pick dozens of achievements on the western front that are far more important to the outcome of the war than anything that went on at Gallipoli. You know, Gallipoli July was a the fourth, nineteen
3: eighteen.
1: Exactly. Yeah, villas Bretonneux, the Battle of villas Bretonneux. Uh-huh. You know, um, Monson um, the attack on the Hindenburg Line in September, nineteen eighteen. Particularly nineteen eighteen. You could pick
0: yeah.
1: a dozen moments that were quite significant. It was you know, August eighth, nineteen eighteen, probably the biggest of them all. Yeah. Really significant Australian achievements that had a material effect on the direction of the war, not the outcome of the war, but the direction of the war.
3: The and, worst and day in of Australian in it ever for the German army, the blackest yeah, day for the right. German army ever. That's right.
1: Ended. So, I mean, and I don't want to overplay that because Australians often do. We played an important part, um, you know, but I think the, the important thing about Gallipoli, and this is where you get distinctions between not the 1918 battles or even even Pozier in 1916, the distinction with Gallipoli was... It was the first. This was the mm. first moment that Australians participated as Australians in any war. And something I think about this as well that's important that doesn't really get mentioned enough is it was an amphibious landing. An amphibious landing is one minute you're in a boat and next minute you're charging the beaches. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's a very distinct action that is different from laying yeah. out some tape in no man's land and assembling and then an orderly advance or even, even going over the top out of the trenches. An amphibious landing... Where you hit an enemy coastline under fire and then come ashore and stake your claim is, is iconic. It, you know, look at D-Day, you know, the, yeah. the idea. I mean, this hands- is, this is
3: landing. it, isn't it? I suppose if you want an American to understand, you would say it is like D-Day. I mean, yeah, you, you got booted off again and that didn't happen after D-Day, yeah. but that, that concept of launching yourself at a hostile land of throwing yourself on yeah. the enemy, it, it's, that's the parallel, isn't it?
1: Exactly. Boots hitting the ground and you're in the war. That's, that's what it is. You're in it. One minute you're in a boat and the next minute you're on the beach. You're under fire. You are now in the war. So there is something about an amphibious landing. It's, it's probably just that it's just such a a clear delineator between war and peace. You know, one minute you're on a ship and it's peaceful. The next minute you're fighting for your life on a beach. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that's important. An amphibious landing, the first action Australians participated in, that's, Always going to resonate with people. That's going to be iconic um, through the ages. And Gallipoli was a major amphibious operation. Until Sicily, Gallipoli was the uh, you know the largest amphibious operation ever undertaken. So it's it's a big action. There's a lots of Australians involved. We're grouped together as Australians. Um, you know, it's just it's it's an epic tale.
3: How did people? Um, you said that news started coming back in May, but a uh, oh wait. So we talked about the front. But at home, how does the concept of Anzac Day um, develop and this attachment to Gallipoli? I mean, is it there before the end of the war? Is it when the guys come home?
1: Oh, from the earliest days. You know, the most famous poster from the First World War recruitment poster is the, the, the famous poster of the Aussie standing with one foot on, you know, the Asian side, one foot on the European side of the peninsula and a call from the Dardanelles, won't you come? Um, you know, it was iconic from the from the earliest moments. We took this hill, you know, help us keep it, come to Gallipoli. It was just iconic. And and even though the campaign was such a disastrous defeat, um, the numbers of enlistments after Gallipoli absolutely surged. The AIF doubled in size, and it was basically due to the PR that came out of the Gallipoli campaign. There were lots of young men in Australia that said, I've now got to go and do my bit to support those guys that are over there. So from the absolute earliest days, um, it was seen as a huge achievement. So it's, it's not so much that it's evolved into this thing that it's become. It was always this thing. And it's yep. just, we've, we've maintained it throughout the decades. Um, and so in that way, it is a real connection with, with our forebears of a hundred years ago that we are just carrying on the legacy that they started themselves. You know, in 1916, on the 25th of April, there were huge commemorations for the first anniversary of that landing. Um, and, you know, even during the campaign, there were commemorations going on. Um, it, where my office is in Sydney, in Manly, on the northern beaches, there's a, there's a, one of the earliest war memorials, um, from the, uh, from the, from the Great War, which went up in early 1916 to list the the casualties from Gallipoli. And so that's, you know, think, imagining it would have taken weeks or months to build, um, while the campaign was going on, they were planning to build that memorial. So um, it's it was extraordinary. It struck a chord with people back home uh, from the earliest days. And that's that's what's continued through
3: to today. If anybody didn't understand what Gallipoli means to Australians, um, you damn well do now. And you understand that it's not all pomp and that, and that it actually is really tied in with, with perhaps it was right for the time and Australia was waiting to become its own national identity and that spurred it on, but it definitely is the catalyst. But before we go, before you make two islands just to the right of you, hate your guts, just mention the New Zealanders as well, because uh, they are they are with you the whole time, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a crucial part of the story. And let me just say, I'm not a New Zealand historian, so I wouldn't uh, yep. pretend for a minute that I'm entitled to tell their history, but yep. we can't overlook our Kiwi brothers over there because, um, yeah, it... it I always think it's fascinating. From my perspective, New Zealand has an incredibly strong link with Gallipoli, uh, as does Australia, but it's different from the way the Australians remember it, that the the Kiwis um, do look at Gallipoli slightly differently than the Australians. Um, But that shared experience, you know, it's Anzac, Australian and New Zealand, the the part of the word ANZAC that gives it that great, uh, that great emotional tug at the heartstrings is the New Zealand <laughs> component at the end of yeah. the bed. And the Kiwis, were, the Kiwis were extraordinary at New Zealand, uh, at Gallipoli. The, the Kiwis did amazing things. The fighting at Chunuk Bear, if you want to read harrowing accounts, I, I don't care about any part of the war, if you want to read a harrowing account of what it's like to be in hand-to-hand combat, read the accounts of New Zealanders at Chunuk Bear during the August Offensive. The, the Kiwis did incredible things at Gallipoli. An absolute travesty that only one Victoria Cross was awarded to a New Zealander. At Gallipoli, that was an absolute travesty. Um, uh, To do with the the commanders on 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 the spot who, for for whatever reason, didn't get their acts together, and so many incredible New Zealand stories of bravery um, went unrewarded uh, at Gallipoli. But um, we we can't talk about Gallipoli and Anzac and those early days of the war without without noting how close that relationship was between Australia and New Zealand, which continued onto the Western Front as well. By the, by the later phases of the war, they'd started to separate quite significantly. But for those first up until well into the early part of 1918, definitely throughout 1917 uh, and before that, the uh, the relationship between the Australians and the New Zealanders, New Zealanders was uh, was just inseparable. It's uh, a real part of the story.
3: Matt, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us a little bit about what Gallipoli means to the Australians and why. Um, I, I'd already... Um, amended and, and come up with a more grown-up approach to it since I'd been there and seen it. Um, I still hate synthesizers, but it, it really <laughs> it really is tied in with Australian history and with Australian identity. Um, and like you say, it's a rite of passage for many, many people to go and see it.
1: Yeah, no, and I think it takes some understanding. It takes some getting your head around to appreciate what Gallipoli means to Australians. I don't understand it myself. I don't pretend to understand it. I have some insights into it from having observed it over the years but I don't uh even you know even in my position I don't begin to pretend that I understand exactly why it means so much to Australians but um no it's 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 important to us and it's it's good that that we remember these things um maybe we overdo it sometimes but uh but in the whole it's it's a really positive thing for Australia so um yeah just thanks for taking the time it's been great
3: No, brilliant. And come on again and talk to us some more about um, the Australian side of things, because otherwise we get a bit too Brit-centric and act like we were the only ones there. Anytime. I'd love to come back. Join us later on today when Bethany Hughes will be talking to us about Venus and Aphrodite. And tomorrow, it's the big one. Uh, It's our Hornblower reunion with Joan Griffith and Jamie Bamber. Um, Don't forget, if you would like to become a patron of uh, History Hack and help us keep going after the end of this COVID-19 crisis, you can do so at uh, historyhack.podbean.com. It's much appreciated. There now follows a public service announcement.
1: I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hold
0: up.